Our scripture reading for this morning is Romans 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Well, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer City Church. Good to see faces in here this morning. So we just finished another membership class. I don't know how many that's been for us. It's got to be around seven or eight, I think, at this point. Uh, But one of the things, if you remember, if you're a member or if you just finished this class, it's going to be easier for you to remember. But we do a commitment form uh, that you would turn in uh, in order to become a member. And we ask some questions at the end to try to gauge like where you're at in your faith and what you're actually trusting in. Uh, it's, it's not a perfect question, but it's something along the lines of, if you were to die and stand before God, what reasons would you give him for letting you in? Um, I can say this now because I believe that everyone who is desiring to become a member has filled out this question already, but if you haven't, you're getting a little freebie this morning. But how you answer this question is so important, not just for eternity, but for this life now. If you were to die and stand before God, what reason would you give him for letting you in? That's more or less what this message is about this morning. We're in a new series in the book of Romans, and last week Nate hit the end of chapter 1. And if you remember chapter 1, I mean, it's just some hard news. Uh, It's some bad news. It's some some direct language directed at specific people. And the words in chapter 1 addresses those with foolish and dark hearts who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than the Creator. And what Paul does is show that even people who seem like they have never been exposed to the truth have no excuse because God has made his truth known in everything that he has created. God's truth is everywhere so that we are without excuse. But then here in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention from the Gentile world, um, 
to the Jews, to those whom had the law and followed the law. And, and one way to look at this is chapter one is more or less addressing the irreligious, and chapter two is addressing the religious. So when the Jews or the religious hear this letter read at the end of chapter one, they must have been looking down their noses at the other people around them. I would imagine they were thinking things like, man, this is what I've always said. Yeah, the world, the world is wicked. They deserve the wrath of God. I, I've been saying this for a long time. And they're probably thinking to themselves how glad God must be that he called us out of the world to be his people. But then, in chapter 2, Paul turns to them and he says, okay, let's talk about you for a minute. The world should know the truth because God has made it plainly clear in creation. But you, God's chosen people, you have the law. You know the truth. You know what is right. You know what to do. And yet, you don't do it anyway. This morning, we're going to critique religion. And I say religion, I'm not talking about the major religions of the world. I'm talking about religion as it's often defined, which is more like moralism. You know, you just have a checklist, and if you just do all of the right things and check off all the boxes, you avoid all the bad things and do all the good things, then God will be in your pocket. He, he, will, he will owe you. He will have to accept you, because that's what religion does. And let me say, like, there is nothing wrong with doing good things and avoiding evil things, right? I hope that you do that in your life. But the idea that if you check all these things off, that somehow God is going to owe you for your good behavior, you're going to be in trouble. Because God judges the motives of the heart. God sees the secrets of the heart. So we need to critique religion. But before we go there, let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and, and we confess that you are worthy of our worship and that oftentimes we are far from your own heart. God, I ask that you would help us to clearly see our own hearts this morning, that you would reveal maybe sins that we've even hidden from ourselves. God, I pray uh, that you would give us much of your grace, not only this morning, but always. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so critiquing religion. We're going to do two things when we critique religion this morning. Is one, we're going to look at the problem of pointing outward. And then the second is like the other side of the same coin, the need to look inward. And as we look inward, we'll finish with a need for repentance. Let's start with the problem of pointing outward. Now, these first few verses talk a lot about judging. Uh, that is looking at the behavior of others and in turn feeling self-righteous. Uh, I guess things haven't changed much because um, the religious people today do a lot of the same things, right? What does the world call Christian in the church often? Judgmental, hypocrites, often pointing out the sins of others while doing the same things ourselves, all the while pretending to be holier than thou. So Paul, as one pastor says, he turns his attention from the openly depraved to the secretly depraved. Or in other words, 
to the secretly morally corrupt or the secretly wicked. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, just imagine when Paul wrote his letters, they were distributed and they would receive them in the church and just read them out loud. So can you imagine like being a a Jew in that day and feeling like you were following all the rules and the end of chapter one is is read in front of the whole congregation and and you're, you're beginning to like cheer like, yes, that's right. And looking down your nose and then all of a sudden it turns, right? It turns, and all of a sudden, instead of you being praised for your good moral behavior, you're actually being pointed at yourself, and you're seeing things in your own life that you have hidden from the rest of the world. But God knows them, and Paul is is pointing them out here. And if you were a Gentile in the congregation that day, you probably thought that Paul was talking about somebody else in chapter 1. And we read that, we think that God is talking about somebody else. See, the Jews here, they're thinking that God is definitely talking about somebody else, but then in a shocking turn of events, they discover that they're not the ones holding the gavel, that they're actually the ones on trial here. See, this is the problem with religion. Most of our world believes that there's an afterlife, and if you were to go up to somebody on the street and ask them, like, how do you get to an afterlife, they would say, well, by being a good person, right? Isn't that what most of the world believes? Of course, not a lot of people around here in Madison. There's a lot of atheists around here, but the most, most of the world believes that you get to an afterlife by just being a good moral person, doing all the right things, avoiding all the bad things, treat others well, be kind, follow the golden rule, and, and that will... Be good enough. However, the only way that you can come to this kind of conclusion that you are good enough to make it in on your own behavior is by grading yourself on a curve. You have to look at others and and judge others in order to elevate yourself. As if one day when you stand before God as your righteous judge, your argument will be, well, God, I know I could have been better. I know there's things I could have done better, but, but look at that guy over there. I'm trying not, not, hard not to point at anybody in this service, right? Look at, look at that guy. Because we want to grade ourselves on a curve. And that's what some of the people in the church in Rome were doing. They looked down their noses at others and graded themselves on a curve. I don't know how long it's been since you've been in college. For me, I have to go back a long ways. Uh, but I remember in, in, in seminary, um, taking an exam, and I love Dr. John Frame. I don't know if you know that name or not, but I, I love him, but I hated his exams. His exams were, were so hard, and just to give you an idea of, of one of his exams, they were multiple choice, which sounds easy, right? But you would read this like super long question, and then it would be like, so which answer is the most true, A or B or C? or D, or E, which is A and B, or F, which is C and D, or all of the above, or none of the above. And I'm like, I I don't know, I gotta read this whole long question all over again. I read the question like five times and then I I would just guess. But when I'm taking this exam and realizing like, man, 
if, if I get through this, it's going to be by the skin of my teeth. I think about like the two wicked smart people in the class that don't have a life outside of seminary and all they do is study and I'm like, God, somehow help them to struggle with this exam too because if we're graded on a curve, then all of us might get a little bit of edge there. Right? Maybe you've done that before in seminary. But no professor is going to fail the whole class, right? Because that would shine poorly upon his own teaching. So I wonder if the smart people in the room were hoping that everybody else bombed it as well, you know, kind of like this concept if you're on a hike and a bear starts chasing you, you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun the person next to you. And I wonder if, if that's what they're thinking of this. This is what religious people do when they judge others. Somehow by your failure to keep the law, my religion will be better. But here's the deal. When we stand before God, you're going to be standing there alone. There's going to be nobody that you can say, well, look at the faith of, of this person or look at how bad that person is. God is going to judge your own heart in that moment. R.C. Sproul once said, no matter how many groups we are members of, there is one thing we must keep before our eyes constantly. And the final analysis, when we stand before God, Almighty God, we stand alone. We cannot appeal to the righteousness of my father or to the righteousness of my mother or to the righteousness of my sister or to the greatness of the church to which I belong. I have to answer for my life by myself before the throne of God. In the end, there will be no appealing to the goodness of others. But I would add, there will also be no appealing to the unrighteousness of others as well. The scale will be thrown out the window. The curve will be gone. We will one day stand before God and he will look solely at our own righteousness. God will look solely at the condition of our own hearts. So in that moment when that scale is thrown out of the window, what will God see about your own heart? What will God see about your, your own righteousness? little foreshadowing. I have a hard time with just saying bad news without throwing a little bit of good news. A little bit of foreshadowing. You actually don't stand alone. If you are in Christ, Jesus stands there with you, and he will be judged, and his righteousness will be good enough for you. But go back to the bad news, because I want you to feel bad for a little bit, because we, we need to understand like how bad the bad news is so that we understand how good the good news is actually is. So that's what Paul does here. He's not wanting the, the church in Rome to falsely believe that they were good enough based on their own righteousness. So he turns from the, the openly depraved to the secretly depraved. And I love what Ray Ortland, uh, he does a sum, summary of this verse in a, in a book that he prays through Romans in. And I love this. He says, as for you, Mr. Moral High Ground, you too are without excuse. You cannot point the finger at the pagan world out there without condemning yourself as well. You are no different. Your very inclination to write off the rest of humanity as morally inferior exposes your own hypocrisy because you do the very same things. Paul is saying, not so fast. Don't be quick to judge others because you're in the same boat. And when you condemn others, you're actually condemning 
yourselves as well. I saw this clip of this um, trial that, that was spectacular. Um, if you ever look it up, not that there's anything wrong with this, but the guy is covered with, with face tattoos, and I love it when people have had a hard life and then they stand before the judge and they wear, they wear glasses and they, they uh, put on a suit to make it look like, yeah, I've, I'm, a, I'm a pretty stand-up person. And he gets through this trial, and this whole time he's pleading his own innocence. Even after the jury found him guilty, he's still pleading his case. So the judge asks him, before he gives him a sentence, you claim your innocence, so what sentence should the man or woman that you claim did this receive? And he boldly gives his answer, to which the judge asks him again, so you think they should get the maximum sentence? And all of a sudden you see it like just turning in the guy's head, like he just realized what, what he's about to do. The light bulb just went off, and he loses his confidence, but there's no turning back now, right? So a little more shaky, he says, most definitely. And in that moment, he just gave himself his own sentence, the maximum sentence. He condemned himself. Paul must be hoping for the same kind of realization from the church in Rome, right? Like somehow they would realize like, man, you know what, I'm, I'm not much better than everybody else. I still have a lot of sin. I do a really good job of hiding it. But if I condemn others, I'm going to condemn myself because I am still filled with sin. Maybe they don't physically commit adultery. You know, they were really good at, at following the law, but maybe they had adultery in their hearts. Maybe they never committed adultery or a murder, but Maybe they thought that in their hearts. That's what Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to look up Matthew 5, 5 and 6. It's the condition of our hearts that God looks at, and one thing they were certainly guilty of was pride. It's the same for us, church. How easy is it to look down at the world and think we have some kind of moral high ground? Sometimes I read chapter 1 and I get all puffed up with pride and I tend to look down at others. But what Paul is saying is that religious people here are even worse. How do you get that? I mean, chapter 1 is, is some tough words, right? Like how in the world would religious people actually be worse off than the Gentiles of the world? Those, those who love sin and celebrate when other people do sin. Well, because they have the law. They know what is right, and they still don't do it. And even for us, church, if you are a Christian and somebody who follows Jesus, you have the law written upon your heart. The new covenant, that's what it says. You receive a new heart, and the law will be written upon your heart. And yet, even though the law is written upon our hearts, sometimes we still do the wrong things, and we can't follow the law perfectly, can we? So we need to stop pointing fingers and we need to take a good, honest look at the condition of our own heart. Look at verses 15 and 16. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness 
and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So God looks at the heart and he judges us by what we thought was hidden, by the secrets of men. Does that not scare the bejeebers out of anybody else? That God doesn't judge us by the actions and the things we do out in the world, but he looks straight into our heart, all these things that we thought that we've hidden from the world, and and we become self-righteous and look down our noses on other people because of our own moral goodness, and God just peers right in and sees everything that we thought was hidden. Man, that's frightening. If you ever seen the movie The The Truman Show? All right, show me hands because I'm older than most of you guys in here. And I, I know that I'm outdating like people in their 20s who are like, why don't we listen to this guy? All these illustrations he uses, I've never heard of. Okay, so Truman Show, let me give you a little premise of this. This baby is born into a TV set, and he grows up his whole life thinking that this is what real life is, and everybody in his world is an actor, and a camera is on him 24-7 all of the time, just follows him around so that we know everything that he is doing. 24-7, we even watch him sleep, right? Now, with all the reality television shows that are out there right now, how would you like to sign up for a reality television show that would follow you around 24 hours a day? See, everything that you do, not only what you do in person, but what you do when you think you're in private. Probably not many people are going to sign up for that show, right? Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. There will be a lot of people that would sign up for that show, but probably not a lot of people in here. But imagine with technology, if they're able to not only see everything you do, but know your every thought. Like know the reasons of the decisions that you made. Know the the sins that you have committed secretly that nobody else saw. That would be hard for others to see, right? I think sometimes we forget that God sees all of this. That when we sin in this kind of way and, and hide it from the world, that we think somehow we're still good and we're still moral and that somehow we've tricked God and he really can't see this and we're going to be good. We're going to be in, in good shape. No matter how good you think you are, nothing is hidden from God. Which means that those of us who are religious, maybe we should be a little bit more honest about what's happening inside of our hearts. So in Jesus' day, there were these teachers of the law called the Pharisees. Pharisees are admired by all the people. I mean, like they really were. Like Jesus even says, like, do, do what they do, right? Because they're following the law. Um, of course, he calls them out for many things as well. But they did, they were teachers of the law. They followed the law to a T. They're admired by all the people as this, like, spiritual example of, of people that we need to become like. And yet God sees their hearts, God saw their secrets that they thought they had hidden. And Jesus calls them out because all the good things they did on the outside, their hearts didn't match at all. Their hearts were completely different. On the inside, they were full of of pride and, and all these hidden kind of sins. But yet, outward, man, they looked good. They looked really good on paper. But they were performers and pretenders. 
And there's this one encounter with Jesus where the Pharisees bring a woman convicted of adultery and they throw her at Jesus' feet and they're all carrying rocks and they're about to stone her. And Jesus responds, let him with no sin be the first to throw a stone. I can imagine standing there and uh, I want to know like how long it took before like the first stone hit the ground. But they began to drop and these Pharisees began to walk away and, and these scribes began to walk away. The older first and then the younger. I love that. I don't know why. Okay, because I'm older than most of you, so I think that's why I like it. But, but I think the, the, older, the older we get, I think we just start to realize more and more like how deep the rabbit hole of our own sin goes. We realize just how much more holy God is than we ever imagined as well. But these Pharisees, these, these people that were hailed in the culture of that day as being the good moral example and followed all the rules, at the end of the day, they were still sinners. And they still stood before God as their judge and still would receive the same punishment as everyone else. In a few weeks, we're going to get to Romans 3.23. If you've never memorized that, that's a good one to memorize, but it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. Religion fails us because it is all about what's on the outside. Just do the right things, follow all the rules, but that's not enough. And the biggest problem with it is oftentimes it leaves us feeling like we're okay when we're really not. Think about many people, just the way they view the world today. Some believe like, hey, we're all okay. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. This, this is great. Obviously, it doesn't take very long to see the problems in that. Just flip open your newsfeed for a minute. Then you have the people that say, I'm okay, but you're not okay, which is just moralism and it's religion. You have, uh, probably the least popular is, you're okay, but I'm not okay. But here's what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us that you're not okay. You're not okay. You're not okay. All of us, nobody is okay. But Jesus came to make you okay. That's actually a really lame way to put that because Jesus did more than just make you okay. You're not okay, but Jesus makes you okay. So here's a good place for us to start. I'm going to begin landing this plane. Take a good, honest look inside. Look at your heart. Like, what is it inside of your own heart that you think that nobody else sees, that you've done a really good job of, hit, of hiding, and maybe you're even trying to hide it from God? You know, I, I think Christians, that it's, it's just a temptation for us to be religious all the time. Even as a pastor, like, uh, people are looking up to me. They're, they're expecting me to be more moral. Okay, I expect Nate to be more moral, for sure. Maybe me a little bit more moral. But we just get caught in this religion. We need to take a look inside of our own hearts and then whatever we find in there we need to confess that sin and we need to repent 
from that sin. So let me recap before we land this plane. The first problem is, is we point outward. We become blind to our own condition. Nate preached last week that it's sick people who need a doctor, uh, but many people uh, miss the fact that they're sick because they're too busy pointing out the sickness of others, which is why we need to look inward to see our own sin, to see our own condition, to see that we're not okay. Listen, the uh, late comedian George Carlin, I don't, I don't uh, encourage you to look him up. My oldest son, Weston, he's turning 13 in May. We love to watch comedians to together, but Weston, if you're listening at home, do not look up this comedian, okay? Just listen to dad's words here. Uh, he's a little bit crude, uh, his words, especially as he got older. Uh, there's one for you younger people. Uh, he just got more and more crude. Um, but one of the things about George Carlin is he was so insightful to how the human heart works. There's this one stand-up that he did, and he's talking about um, how we drive in our cars. I mean, this, this is such a good place. Like, if you ever want to know where there's hidden sin, just go for a drive in rush hour traffic, and, and you'll soon find out where that, where that comes out. But George Carlin says, when we drive, everybody who goes slower than us is an idiot, and everybody who drives faster than us is a maniac. Just think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. What's the problem with this kind of view? Well, first, it, it puts yourself as the metric of what a good and reasonable and responsible driver looks like, right? Except for on Monday, you were daydreaming, and Tuesday, you were late for an appointment, so you were both an idiot and a maniac in the same week, right? But the other problem is, is that everybody who drives slower than you thinks you're the maniac, and everybody who drives faster than you thinks that you're the idiot. It's all in the eyes of the beholder. Church, this is why we cannot play the role of judge, because we are sinners. We are not a good and holy and righteous judge, but thankfully, the one who judges is. We need a good and righteous judge, and that's what God the Father is for us. Yes, he sees our sins, but man, there's no partiality within God. God judges everyone the same for what he sees inside of their hearts. Look at verses three and four. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Two things from verse 4. Paul is addressing those who deny or secretly hide their, their sin, and in doing so, they are spurning God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, there's a lot more of this to come in chapter 6. Instead of storing up treasures for themselves in heaven, these people are storing up God's wrath. For them, it will be a life sentence apart from God unless they come to repentance. They are guilty. There's a life sentence before them. And they are using God's kindness as a way to laugh upon God. 
They're taking advantage of God's kindness. But then the second part of that verse says, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is not so that we might continue to judge others or secretly hide our sins, but God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Listen, the most loving thing God can do for sinners is help us to see our sins and lead us to repentance. The most loving thing God can do for us is not by letting us continue to think that we're self-righteous, that we've checked off all the right boxes, that, that we, are, we are worthy of his righteousness, to think we're righteous ourselves. The best thing God can do is to show us how sick we actually are and then help us to turn so that we can become well again. God's kindness, not his law, not berating, not exasperation, not bullying, not controlling, not forcing, but his kindness leads us to repentance. It is God's grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. Paul says in, in another um, letter he wrote in Titus 2, 11 through 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's kindness is his grace given to us. It's not earned by moralistic or religious behavior, is not earned at all. It's totally and freely a gift to us. So I want to go back to that courtroom illustration because Paul uses this a lot. Talking about a, a judge that just puts us back in the courtroom. And I want you to just picture that you're standing before God. The jury has just slapped your verdict that you are guilty of sin. Doesn't matter that you were a little bit letter, better than the people at the end of chapter one, right? You are still guilty of sin and the jury has just convicted you. And now the judge is about to give you the sentence. But what happens? God takes that sentence and he doesn't put it on us. Instead, he moves it to his own son, Jesus Christ. Sounds like a good movie right there, right? God gives the sentence to his own son. Jesus takes on our sin because we are incapable of living sinless and righteous lives. Jesus takes on the wrath of God, the punishment we deserve for our sin so that we don't have to. Jesus dies so that we might live. And perhaps the sweetest part of this is that Jesus makes us righteous before God. When we are in Christ, God no longer sees our sin, but sees us as holy and righteous because of the work that Jesus has done for us. So let me close by going back to the original question. 
If you were to die and stand before God, what answer would you give as to why he should let you into heaven? If your answer begins with, I've tried, you're still clinging to moralism and not the gospel. If your answer begins with, I'm better than, you are still judging and pointing fingers at others while ignoring your own sin and not trusting in the gospel. Church, the only I that should be in our answer is, is I am not worthy. I, I am not worthy of this gift that God has given me because, because you're not, because I'm not. But Jesus is. And Jesus died for you. His life, death, and resurrection are sufficient. By God's grace through Jesus, you are absolutely invited in. Like the song that we just sang, God, we praise you because you make sinners holy. Let's pray. God, we confess before you today that there are many times that we, we try to earn your favor. Instead of doing good works, because of the richness of your grace. God, I just pray for us, Lord, that we would not look down our noses at other people around us, uh, that we might discover that in, in some way or another, we still harbor the same sins. But thankfully, you didn't leave us there, God. We praise you that Jesus came to make us well. So help us to keep our eyes upward, and to cling to this good news of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.